Hello, everybody, and welcome back to OMB Reviews. I am the critic who is a cynic. How is everyone doing this evening? Welcome back to the channel. Happy Tuesday, and welcome to episode 448 of the Welcome to Asgard podcast, where tonight we're going to talk about the Mission Impossible 7 box office. There's been a lot of confusion, a lot of misunderstanding, I feel, about it. And this is only, of course, looking at the numbers as they currently stand, as they are currently available to us. So obviously, these are all subject to change if we see any actual drastic movement in said numbers, which as at this point, looking at both the domestic and international together, as we have to look at them both together, at this point in time, it is acting like a typical Mission Impossible film and is doing just fine. It's not doing amazing to the point of it breaking records. We're not def we're definitely not seeing a Top Gun Maverick um, performance here, and we will likely not see that performance happen domestically. It'd be very unlikely for that to happen, but we are seeing quite a bit of life in those international numbers, and it is still set to get a release in Japan, though I do like to add that caveat that there's apparently also a Miyazaki film coming out this Friday as well in Japan, which will, of course, take up, I would believe, to be a large portion of those box office numbers in Japan because, as we all know, animes do very, very well in that country, let alone from one of the most prolific anime animators uh, of all time. Uh, many of you know Miyazaki's work from uh, some of the big movies that he has done, Spirited Away, etc., but of course his work with Studio Ghibli is the most well-known, and so for that to be coming out this weekend, it's going to be taking a lot, but... We also know that Japan is a very different type of market. We oftentimes will see smaller releases in that country that end up ballooning up well over time. There's a very different movie-going populace there in Japan. Their movie-going habits are a little bit different, and it's all about that long game in that country if a film has any chance of, of doing well. But we'll talk about all those details also. We will talk about Sound of Freedom and how it is just whooping, but at the box office right now, uh, well above its weight, well above its class, and why I think that this is a big reason as to how the mainstream media is continuing to try to perpetuate nonsense about the film and continue to try to perpetuate actual conspiracy theories. I would argue that the media is the one embracing conspiracy theories that have no basis in reality and how it's not working and how Sound of Freedom is doing something that most other movies are not able to do percentage wise. The actual raw money coming in for the film, again, compared to its budget, is incredibly impressive. However, I do think that there are some out there that are, I think, wrongly speculating that somehow Sound of Freedom is taking money away from a movie like Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning, which, again, if you just look at the actual numbers and the actual data, does not actually seem to be the case. Two things can be true at once. Sound of Freedom can do, be doing incredibly well, and it can also not be stealing audiences away from going to see Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. So we'll talk about that. We'll also talk about uh, Barbie and Oppenheimer box office numbers. We have some early projections coming out of Tony and Nance over at Deadline. So we'll talk about those numbers too. Before we go further though, please make sure you smash that like button. Light of the fire button, Austin, and smash the rumble button as well. And thank you all again for being here today. Let's go ahead and say hello to the people in the chat. Let me go ahead and close this window real quick. I'm a little out of sorts today, as you can tell. Uh, for anyone who has not watched uh, the stream, did not watch the morning stream that I was able to do uh, yesterday on the channel, uh, I was able to update some people on the status of my Blu-ray shelf. It has been fixed, so the Blu-ray shelf is now back intact. Again, it was really just the, the flimsy back cover that fell off. 
Uh, the entire thing tipped over, hit the wall, which is why you also see uh, on the wall right now, we, we were able to try to... Uh, there were some indents in the wall in the sheetrock, and so we had to cover those up. So that's why you have the spotting. We're going to do some painting uh, a little bit later tonight after the stream ends. And uh, and so it should be pretty much good as new. Uh, the Blu-ray shelf, though, being fixed as far as getting the movies back into the Blu-ray shelf, that's going to take a little bit of time as I uh, have had them in alphabetical order. And if you watched Friday Night Tights, you saw the entire shelf fall against the wall and all the movies just literally like water just, you know, fall in in a very spectacular uh, fashion. And so that will take a little bit of time. I was able to digitize, not digitize, but I was able to get my list. Uh, there's a great app called My Movies from Blu-ray.com, and they have, uh, they have on there the ability for you to add all of your physical media. And so that's going to help me in the process of getting them in alphabetical order. So again, apologies for the blank background, but if you're watching Friday Night Tights or if you're on social media, you know exactly what happened. And uh, yeah, it was quite, quite entertaining. All right, let's go ahead and say hello to people. We got here in the Steadfast in the chat. What's going on here? And again, if you have a comment or question, just put at Odin, the very beginning of your comment, at Odin. Let's me know that you are trying to get my attention. And uh, again, thank you all for being here. Keely Chow, who is a member, hail to you, saying, how are you, Thor and baby Thor and Freya doing? Also, how was Freya's birthday celebration? How is the shelf doing? I explained the shelf. Uh, and the Lady Frey's birthday went well. We we had dinner on Saturday, and I just realized when I was creating the episode, when I was creating the link for this, I was looking at the episodes, and I was like, wait, have I really not done a evening stream since July 4th? And I looked back, and I was like, well, yeah, because I canceled the next Saturday because we went to celebrate the, the Lady Frey's birthday by going out to dinner while my mom was in town, and then that next Tuesday, it was canceled because that was her actual birthday. And then after that, we had uh, my wife's family friends come over this past weekend. So we had to cancel. So I was like, oh my goodness, I can't believe that it's actually been that long uh, since since being on the show, being on the channel. So um, yeah. Let's see. Orange Hat Reviews, thank you very much for being here. He is the King Mod, so please do follow his instructions. Um, let me see if I can get this to read. The Horror Stream Live, thank you very much for hanging out over on Odyssey. So just got back from seeing Sound of Freedom, holy cow, super difficult to watch, but well worth it. Agreed, absolutely. It's a very, very powerful film, very well made, and I have no surprise whatsoever that it's doing as well as it is, that it's resonating with audiences as well as it is. King Ann Rumsky, who just tagged over on Rumble. What's going on, King Ann Rumsky? says, I finally figured out Mission Possible's version of Spectre is Ethan Hunt, the American James Bond. Finally figured out Mission Impossible's version of Spectre. Huh. I'm a little confused on that one. Do you mean like the, if you watched Rogue Nation, how they have the, the syndicate? I guess you could say that it's somewhat similar. A Rogue Nation. But King Kane Rumsky, welcome back. General Wingster says, Odin, I saw a double header on Friday. Can you guess what two can you, can you? A double header on Friday. Um, I would have to guess Mission Impossible 7 and Sound of Freedom. That would be my my best guess. Keely Chow, thank you for reminding everybody. Yes, indeed. Please keep the channel and the chats family friendly. General Wingster says, it was Joyrod. <laughs> Joyrod? What in the world did I just say? Joyride and no hard feelings. I regret everything. Goodness gracious, General Wingster. Why in the world would you do that to yourself? Why in the world? Joyride and no hard feelings. What were you thinking? 
My goodness. Thanatos Felicitas, what's going on? Thanks for tagging. Says, fancy meeting you here. I know. It's not like I saw you earlier. Kimberly G. What's going on, Kimberly G.? I saw Mission Possible 7 today. Fastest two hours and 40 minutes I've had in any movie. Great, but I think Fallout is a touch better. Yeah, I'm in the process of rewatching all the films, so I was able to get through a little bit more of Rogue Nation, and uh, which is the fifth film. And so far, I still... I don't know. There's, just, there's just something about Ghost Protocol that I really, really like. And I can't quite put my finger on it because I don't necessarily think it's the story outright because with Rogue Nation, you have the introduction of, I think, some really cool characters. Rebecca Ferguson's character, I think, is great. Finding out more about her backstory. And then also the the visual feats in, in uh, Rogue Nation are also very impressive. Of course, in the very beginning, you have him hanging off the side of an actual plane as it's hanging off. I remember being blown away by that when it was first being promoted several years ago, back in 2015. And I, again, it was just as amazing watching it again. And then, of course, the entire underwater sequence, too, um, which is just really impressive that, you know, Tom Cruise actually trained himself to hold his breath for a certain length of time. It's just it really is amazing. And uh, and again, that's why these films are so much fun. That's why I think Mission Impossible 7 is a great film. And, you know, I think that some people are just getting a little bit caught up on the movie, uh, you know, who are, I think. Maybe they don't even realize what they're doing, but it sounds almost as if they're like attacking the film in a certain respect when it's like, look. I know I'm not saying that it's the best Mission Impossible movie. I'm not even saying it's the best movie ever or even the best movie of this year. Is it in my top five of this year? Absolutely. Because fact is, is that it's a lot of fun. It's a very fun, entertaining movie. And guess what? That That's why we go to the movies. And as you all know, I'm not all for the popcorn, turn off your brain nonsense. I have to have at least some co- coherence to the storytelling. And guess what? Th- that coherence is there. Something that Mission Impossible films, you know, for pretty much the entirety of it, I would argue that Mission Impossible 2 falls off the rails. By the way, after rewatching Mission Impossible 2, I can absolutely confirm that movie is trash. I'm sorry, like, it's just not good. If, if anything, I could understand why someone would like it from a nostalgia standpoint, because it came out in the early 2000s, and so it has that, you know, that, that 2000 look and feel. But I guess that's my problem with it, too, is that it's it's dated. And I think that really good movies, especially, are able to not feel like they're stuck in a certain time frame. Like even the first film came out in the nineties. It doesn't really feel too much like a nineties movie. If that makes sense. I, I, basically it still holds up today. Whereas with Mission Impossible two, I was cringing and I was like, Oh no, are they really doing these types of shots? Are they really doing this? It just doesn't hold up. Uh, let's see. They call me Mr. Williams. What is going on? Miss Minnesota hockey fan. How about a hockey player? Candy T what's going on. Thank you very much for being here. As always, 2023 movies. Thank you for being here. Luis L says, hello from France. What's going on? Wayward Noodle in the chat. Hail to you, Wayward Noodle. Thank you very much for being here. We got Great Wuda in the chat as well. Thank you for being here, good sir. Great Wuda. Hamilton Berger. What's up, Berger? Hamilton Berger tag to say, I wonder if more actors are starting to come around. In an interview with Margot Robbie and Greta Gerwig about Barbie... Uh, Margot Robbie seemed to be avo- seemed to avoid labeling the movie as feminist, even while Greta Gerwig did. I mean, I don't necessarily think they're coming around. I think that if you look at the full length of the interview, there is, I think, a allowance on both sides, uh, you know, from both of them indicating the type of movie that it is. I think that what we have to understand, and obviously, if it's coming from the director. I don't think it's as easy to do what I'm about to say, 
But sometimes it's it's, it's it requires it's required of us to look past what the actors, especially when actors in movies are claiming certain agenda items are in movies. Sometimes we know that it's not true. Sometimes when the movie eventually comes out, we see, oh, the actor is just trying to push forth an agenda that's not explicitly in the movie. And it would be hard to argue that it's even implicitly there. Now, when it comes from a director or a writer, okay, mm, no, I, I'm not going to give the benefit of the doubt there because they're the person that was behind the camera. They were the person that had a vision for the movie. And so I ultimately think that, um, especially in the case of the upcoming Barbie movie, when the director's coming out saying that it's a feminist movie, and it's not even just that she's saying it's feminist, right? But it's then her going into some explanations as to how it's feminist or as to how it goes about accomplishing that. And it's in that explanation that I think that there's some concern. Because, again, we don't go to the movies to be preached at. We don't go to the movies to to receive a a sermon from, from the political, and, many, and again, the vast majority of cases with Hollywood, right, from the political left. That's not why we go to the movies. And so when the director of the movie is coming out saying that it's there and saying that uh, that was a part of her vision... And this is something that I pointed out pretty early on. Like, again, talking months ago, it was already revealed in an interview that she claimed part of the writing process was inspired by a psychology book on self-image for teenage girls. And I, I think about that, and I think about what she has said since then, and something tells me that there's going to be not just implicit messaging in that movie. So... Again, it's probably still going to do well because it is a Barbie movie. And the marketing specifically has not really had that much explicit, you know, pandering. I think that there's definitely implicit things you can say. Mm, I see what you're doing here. I can see the direction you're probably going to take the things that you've kind of laid down in this. But general audiences, for the most part, are going to look at the trailer and say, okay, that looks like it might be fun. But... I think that after the opening weekend, especially if the movie does have any overt political messaging, okay, I think that's when we might end up seeing the film drop off, but it's going to have a good opening weekend. Let's see, Laura, the modern major general story. What's going on, Laura? Thank you very much for being here. General Wingster, who is a member, says, unrelated, but if someone missed the first 15 minutes of Sound of Freedom, did they miss much asking for a friend? Um, oh, goodness, I don't know. So, Wingster, with you, I never know if you're telling the truth or if you're trolling. Uh, he is our pet troll on the channel. Uh, the first 15 minutes, though, yeah, you're missing quite a bit. Uh, the first 15 minutes is, I think, some of the most intense. Uh, it's probably the most intense part, of, one of the most intense parts of the movie, in that it, it's when you are seeing the character of Tim Ballard. Again, obviously, he's a real-life person, but the character that Jim Caviezel plays, you know, you see his job. You see what his job is. And what he has to go through and the impact that it's having on him. So I would say it's pretty important to watch those first 15 minutes. But it's also very difficult too. Cannabis Hemp. Welcome to the chat. Hamilton Burger. By the way, anything new collapsing in your neck of the woods? Nope. Uh, in fact, you could argue that the edifice of Hollywood has been rebuilt in my Blu-ray shelf. Uh, Zine Waters. What's going on? Welcome back. Glad to have you here. Keck44 in the chat. Keely Chow in the chat. Thank you all again. Gary Bader-Sandwich says, drive by wall. I see what you did there. Great Wuda. I'm glad to hear about your resurrection of the Blu-ray shelf. Thank you, Great Wuda. Yes. Uh, hopefully, it'll be in the background by the next stream. And hopefully, the movies start to fill in. Um, if I just have a, a dedicated period of time, I can I can get all that stuff in there. Laura then says, thank you for the tag. Do we need a GoFundMe to get you some better furniture? <laughs> Well, again, I, I tried to explain this the other day. 
that what happened was the it was it was off the wall because we were having some work done in here again we've got family friends over and one of them is able you know has some experience with electricity and was able to uh, basically install a few light switches move some light switches things like that in order to do that without having to actually cut you know drywall to patch up later he had to go in through the floor, uh, through the floor through the trim on the floorboards basically and so uh, because of that, we needed to take it off the wall. We needed to move the shelf off the wall. And so it was standing in the middle of the room. However, because of the way it's built, it's built to be up against a wall. And so over the course of Friday Night Tights, at some point, it must have just been either moving very, very, very slowly until eventually, you know, gravity took over and it just fell up against the wall. So as I said, the, the shelf actually is still intact. The only thing that actually broke and having gone through all my movies, all my movies are, are in good shape, so no damage there. The only thing that actually broke was the back paneling, which you've, if you've ever gotten a Blu-ray shelf or something like it, you know that the back paneling is more so for visuals than practical reasons or for practical use. And so it's not very sturdy. And so because of that, when it fell against the wall and then all the weight of the movies was pushing up, pushing up against that, it didn't take much for that to you know, crack one of the boards. And again, that's the only thing that actually broke was one of those backboards, but a little bit of tape was able to, to fix that issue. Let's see. Um, over on rumble, King and Rumsky tag say, I think the big question is when are you planning on seeing the Barbie movie? Okay. So I do have my ticket for Oppenheimer and I made it a point to go see it in IMAX. Unfortunately, the only IMAX showings near me, um, the earliest. So, the only showtimes near me around the time that I could actually go to see it would be there's a showing at 6 p.m. Can't do that. Baby Thor uh, doesn't go to bed till 6.30. And I'd, I wouldn't feel right, you know, leaving the Lady Freya um, early for that. And so can't do a 6 p.m. And then after that, the only other IMAX showing is around 8 p.m. Or actually, it's not even a IMAX showing. I think it's like the big D format over at the local AMC, which is the one that I have a lot of issues with. And it's like, I don't really want to do that because I'd rather go see an IMAX and it's a three-hour movie. I can't justify going in at 8 p.m. and then getting out past 11 p.m. Um, again, don't want to wake up the Lady Freya. So I have my ticket to go see it around 10.30 in the morning on Friday, which will give me plenty of time to, to watch it. And... Uh, so that, that's what I'm seeing Oppenheimer, which means my Thursday night is going to be free, which means I will probably, probably see the Barbie film on Thursday evening, though I really, really don't want to. I'm dragging my feet buying that ticket and committing to that time. Uh, B-Rad, tagged to say, did you see ZBR said Indy 5 broke even? Yes. Yes, I did. And I, I, I tweeted, I retweeted that when it, as soon as it got posted. And I just was laughing because it's like, oh, my goodness, I can't believe like it's one thing if a collider comes out with that. And again, collider has been trashed for such a long time. And I remember that they were saying that, you know, Little Mermaid had broken even and all these other films that were massive flops that somehow they broke even because they use very not even just dated metrics. They just use incorrect metrics across the board. And so it's one thing for them to come out with it. But CBR, CBR sometimes has like not good content, but fair content. So for them to come out and say that, and then the fact that they also worded it in a way where they said it's broken even, quote, internationally, is also one of the most silly things that I've ever heard because anyone who actually follows box office knows you get a lot less return on your box office dollar if you're a studio going international versus going domestic. You get a lot higher return 
on your box office domestic than international. Now, again, if you get a huge amount of money internationally, though, guess what? Doesn't really make that much of a difference. And then because you do have that massive take domestically, you still get about maybe, you know, when all is said and done, about half, 50 to 60 percent of the entire box office. And um, but yeah, for them to say that is just so out of touch with reality. It's 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 pretty ridiculous. It's pretty ridiculous. Jeremy Zakowski, welcome back. Tad to say, so are you saying uh, you own all of the flops, all of the flop movies? <laughs> sure. Uh, George Bonnie 90, what's going on? Richard B. Welcome back. Uh, Bruce hanging out in the chat as well. Hail to you. I'm going to try and get through as many of the initial comments and then jump into the main news talking about Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning. So, peace, pre- appreciate y'all. Patience. General Wingster says, Oh, did miss my birthday? I did. I'm sorry, General Wingster. Happy belated birthday. Happy belated birthday, man. And actually, no, we had figured out, General Wingster, that you actually share the uh, share a birthday with the Lady Freya. So, um, I do apologize for not being live on that day, though. Uh, let's see, Lord, time to say, I thought Mission Impossible was long until I heard about Oppenheimer's runtime. Yeah, Oppenheimer is three hours long. Solid three hours. I hear it's great. The early buzz about the movie is that it's it's really good. I have some concerns because apparently there is, uh, like, nudity and, and sex in, in the film. And as you all know, that kind of stuff for me is just so unnecessary in movies. Um, but I, I, I expect and hope that that's going to be a very, very small portion of that three-hour movie. And that the vast majority of it instead is going to be focused on the drama of the development and implementation of, of the atomic bomb. So, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely interested to see what it's going to be and how good it's going to be. I hope it delivers. I'm I'm one of the few that actually enjoyed Tenet. So I, I have some high hopes for it, as it is a Nolan film. He very rarely lets me down, but he has. So, <laughs> Orange Eye Reviews. His member says, Joyrod, Joyrod, Odin, do I have to warn you that this is a family-friendly stream? <laughs> great, Wuda. Let's see, he says, so you agree that Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 is a great film title? No, great, Wuda. No, it's still a terrible film title, and it's way too long. The film title is is longer than the movie, if you know what I mean. Mark Lizeth, what's going on? Welcome back. Joey's movie blog, tag to say, my first filmmaking project is finally getting off the ground. Audition start in August. Congratulations. Joey's, Joey's movie vlog. I hope that it goes well. Let's see. Road Rager says, Greetings from Rhode Island. Mission Impossible 7 was awesome. Well, hey, thanks for being here from Rhode Island. And I agree. It was indeed a lot of fun. It was a great film. Great summer film, especially. Uh, let's see. Hardwick says, Haley Atwell's screen test for Dead Reckoning was two hours of stunt choreography to find out what her ideal fighting style was. Nice. And you know what? I think they did an excellent job and an excellent pick. She was awesome in the film. She was fantastic. General Wingster is a member says, but Odin, which is worse, Mission Impossible 2 or Unicorn Store? I mean, that's no, no competition whatsoever. Unicorn Store is an abomination, right? Mission Impossible 2 is bad. And I think you could even argue that Mission Impossible 2 is funny in the same way like the prequels are funny, the Star Wars prequels, because they're so bad, they're funny. Mission Impossible 2 kind of feels that same way because it's so, it's so 2000 and it's so poorly made in that 2000 in that 2000 way that it's it has that cheese factor to it so where it's almost just funny at that point unicorn store is not funny unicorn store is just again it is one of the worst films that's ever been made and it it just sucks the life out of you rob d hello odin got tacos and nachos tonight very nice had myself a quesadilla tonight 
It was actually, I'd never had this before, a sweet potato quesadilla. It was quite good. It was quite good. Oh, man. General Winkster then says, I'm just kidding you. I don't watch trash. Good. I'm glad to hear that that double feature was not actually true. Double back again. I'm sorry that the spackle is distracting. I'm sorry. It's just the way the timing worked out tonight. General Wingster, I saw Mission Impossible 7 and missed some and missed some of Sound of Freedom. I started at the part where he went undercover with the prisoner. Okay, okay, okay. So you still miss some then, uh, but that's, I think, kind of like that big part because you just, again, he kind of dives into the psychology of that prisoner and you just see a little bit more of what he has to go through and deal with. And if, I assume, does that mean that you would, I can, I've only seen the film once. If you missed the title sequence, I think that's also a very powerful part of the movie too. But uh, yeah, let's see. Laura says, just finished the Bear series on Hulu. One of the best series I've seen in a long time. The hype is well-deserved. Interesting. Don't know much about that one, to be honest. Dan Crane, what's going on? Hail Odin and the family. Hail to you. Joe Wingster says, wait, Odin, you broke, your shelf broke. Quick, make sure all the John Wick 4Ks are fine. All, all the movies are fine. Uh, unless I missed something. Hamlin Burger, be honest, because of the timing of the collapse, clearly the reason that your shelf is a bit of a drama queen. <laughs> yes, this is true. Mike Jackson, what's up, says, duct tape uh, solves most problems here in the South, including Blu-ray shelves, roll tide. <laughs> Again, duct tape, apparently, yeah, based on what I saw, it, it looked pretty darn good. Sahil, what is going on? Uh, it's definitely annoying that it won't be in IMAX, but it will still be in theaters, and it'll still be in a plethora of theaters at that. Rob D, can't wait until Aquaman 2 hits theaters. I'm expecting one auditorium with one showtime per theater. By one auditorium, I mean a 15-inch CRT television with three chairs at the end of the hall. <laughs> nice. Okay. I think that's a good spot to jump then into the first story tonight. So I will jump back into the chat after we get back from it. Let's go ahead and then talk a little bit about Dead Reckoning Part 1. And let's talk about the box office. So... You saw in the title, right, talking about the confusion of the Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 box office. So the reason why I say confusion is because, for one, it is a bit of a head-scratcher. And the reason why it's a bit of a head-scratcher is because, if you, if you look to the likes of Deadline Box Office Pro, many people were speculating, right? And it made sense to me, as it was being reported, that the opening weekend for Mission Impossible was going to be around a 92 to $100 million dollar domestic opening weekend of the five-day total. It came in well below that number, right? It ended up being closer to around $80 million for those days, right? This is including here the $5.3 million that was projected to have come in this past Monday. And so because of that, there have been some some people speculating that, oh, well, it was supposed to make 90 to 100. It only ended up doing somewhere between, you know, somewhere around 80 million. Okay, that seems to indicate then that this movie is not very big and that this movie's not doing well and that this movie is going to be a flop and a failure. Well, again, that's only if you are comparing what the projections were to what actually happened and not actually looking at the data coming in from the previous Mission Impossible films. Because if you actually look at the data of the previous Mission Impossible movies, this is something that I've mentioned before, you start to realize that this movie is performing like a typical Mission Impossible film. For one, the international number is significantly higher than the domestic, right? As of right now, 83 million domestic, 154.9 million international. This film is doing very, very well in the international markets that it's in. In fact, 
And this is something that I talked about with WW Pro and Valiant Renegade. Shout out to them. Uh, there's a video that we uh, we recorded it last night, actually. And uh, we were talking about this and how some are saying that, well, Mission Impossible's box office is just showing that this is not something that's exclusive to Disney. It's not something that's exclusive to bad movies. Even really good movies like Dead Reckoning aren't doing well. The problem with that is that that ignores a bit of history because we know there have been successful films. We know that there have been billion-dollar films, especially since the time of the pandemic. And so that pretty much just destroys that narrative in and of itself. The fact that those films do exist. And the fact that there have been films that have been able to make money and have actually been able to make quite a bit of profit on top of that. But again, looking at these numbers, are they a disappointment compared to what the projections were? Again, internationally, they were projecting the film to get up to $250 million, and it came in around $230 million instead. Well, okay. What exactly can we gather from this? So again, this is where this confusion comes in. Well, don't forget, and this is a very important factor, right? Let's go back in time a little bit. What was the global opening for Mission Impossible Fallout back in 2018? It opened to $156 million. Now, we look at that and we see, okay, it was available in almost the same number of markets. Could arguably actually have had more back in 2018, as this was prior to the pandemic, prior to any of the crazy nonsense that was happening, that's been happening since that time. But even if you adjust that for inflation, as you all know, I do. I love to adjust for inflation. That $156 million becomes around $190 million. Okay. Well, if you look at Dead Reckoning Part 1 opening to around $230 million, and the $190 million, that was the opening for Mission Impossible Fallout, okay, that's about a $40 million difference, right? And so because you have that $40 million advantage, even with inflation, going towards this brand new film, okay, that to me tells me quite a bit. And it tells me that, especially when you're looking at the domestic versus international, you're looking at this movie... Dead Reckoning, not performing as strong domestically, but performing a lot better internationally. And so because of that, it is very clear to me that the movie Dead Reckoning is doing as well as it needs to do at this point. Again, Fallout ended up going on to make $900 million when you adjust. So not $900 million is what Fallout ended up making. And if this movie, and it is right now, as of the recording of this stream... Right now, Dead Reckoning is tracking ahead in these international markets, and it's still technically tracking ahead of where Fallout was as well. Now, again, I do always want to give that caveat that it's not exactly fair to compare the fact that Fallout had a traditional opening weekend, whereas Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning had a extended opening. That's why you see here in this comparison chart a $40 million by the first Friday for Dead Reckoning and a $26 million for Fallout. Now, again, also people will still look at this and say, well, look at that opening weekend, right? 26 versus 16, 24 versus 21, 19 versus 16. Yes, those are all true, that the opening weekend for Fallout was better than what it was for Dead Reckoning. But remember, there are millions of tickets that were sold in those previous days, which is the reason why you have, by the first Sunday, by actually the first Monday, $83 million for Dead Reckoning, $78 million for Fallout. Now, some people are also saying, but wait a minute, that's a pretty steep drop-off from the Sunday to the Monday for that movie. But here's the thing. It was about the same as it was for Fallout. 19 million to 7 million, 16 to 5, those are almost the same exact percentage level drop. 
So even that in and of itself does not mean that the movie is somehow doing poorly. Again, Fallout went on to make around $252 million domestically, so not a huge domestic hit there. But then internationally, Fallout went to make $650 million. Well, we all know that right now internationally, Dead Reckoning is actually tracking a little bit better in various markets versus Fallout. And because of that, then we can assume that if those trends continue, if those numbers continue to come in, and again, those week two numbers will give us the best estimate of that, will give us the best understanding of that. Well, then that means that, okay, internationally, we can still see the film get better than what Fallout made. It would make sense for that to actually be the case. So you're looking at what? $700 million internationally as a potentiality at this point, if not more. And again, we still have a ways to go for that to actually happen, but... Right now, the numbers seem to indicate that it's doing well internationally. Whereas domestically, okay, it's not doing nearly as, you know, it's not it's doing slightly less than what we saw from Fallout in certain metrics. But again, it's hard to compare them because they are very different in their openings. But I can't honestly look at these numbers and say that $200 million domestic is out of the realm of possibility for a film like Fallout. I think it's absolutely still possible for that to actually happen. And so even if it does make $50 million less than what Fallout made, well, if it makes $100 million or so extra internationally, well, then that makes up that bit of a difference. And then you're looking at, again, around a $900 million end. But there's also that potentiality that it does even better internationally than what even I suspect could happen, which is why even a billion dollars is still on the table. Now, is it likely? Is it absolutely going to happen? Again, that's not exact. that's not at all what I'm saying. What I am saying is that based on the numbers that we have in front of us right now, it's doing just fine. One other example that I have pulled up right now is the box office for, sorry, not Ant-Man, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. This film just got out of theaters. It ended its run around $840 million, all right? So just shy of the $850 million that I thought was possible, but hey, got pretty close. Now, domestically, the movie was a pretty big you know, a pretty big uh, moneymaker there, especially for this, you know, calendar year. $358 million was where it ended. But internationally, it was only at 480 So if this movie was able to make $850 million, right, doing very well domestically, but not nearly as well internationally, and you're seeing a very different split domestic versus international, not as strong domestic for Dead Reckoning, a lot stronger international for Dead Reckoning. Okay, well then, even then, you still have, again, these two examples where... And that's why I think $850 to $950 million is a very likely scenario for this movie. But I suspect that especially when we get those week two numbers in, not only will, of course, we be able to make much better uh, estimates and much better understandings of what's going on with the movie, but also we might be able to start to speculate as to what that likely end point for the film will end up being. The fact is, though, as of the numbers are right now, it is doing fine. And this is not me trying to overly defend the movie. It just gets very annoying when people come out of the woodwork trying to argue that the film is doing terribly when the reality is that there's no data to suggest that's actually happening. You know, I'm all for talking about how the film's not doing as well as it was expected to do. That is a fact. It is not living up to the $250 million opening that was thought. But remember, there was also a five-day opening, non-holiday frame, that there's almost no historical data to actually find. There's actually no historical data, and there's there's really no uh, c- comparable releases that you can find. So it makes sense that the projections would have been off. They were still off, and that's a fact, but again, it makes sense that they would have been off. But anyway, that's where the confusion is I'm talking about, is that I think some people are a little confused looking at the data right here, trying to argue that somehow, some way, it's not doing well, when 
the fact and the reality is that it is doing well. Now, if we want to argue or if we want to talk about Sound of Freedom, guess what? Sound of Freedom is doing exceptionally well based on the amount of money spent on the movie. And again, Angel Studios only spent maybe about $5 million to get the rights to the movie. They didn't produce it. Remember, 20th Century Fox made the movie five years ago. Disney had it for about a year, sat on it. Eventually, they decided to sell it. Angel Studios bought it for about $5 million. So they've made $90.7 million after two weeks of being at the box office. It is still making $1,500 per screen. Its per screen ratio is actually even better than what Dead Reckoning Part 1's uh, ratio is. Now, this is, again, where these other bits of confusion come in, because there are also some that are speculating that, well, maybe Sound of Freedom is taking audience away from Mission Impossible. Now, whereas I can't say that that's not happening at all, because, again, clearly there's going to be some people who would have otherwise gone to see Mission Impossible who might have ended up going to see Sound of Freedom instead. The only way to make that argument, and it all stems from essentially looking at that comparison, looking back to the comparison between what some thought, myself included, thought, Mission Impossible would be similar to the release of what we found with Top Gun Maverick. And I know that some have argued that Top Gun Maverick not performing, or rather Mission Impossible not performing as well as Top Gun Maverick means that that audience must have gone somewhere and that the argument is somehow they're going to Sound of Freedom. The reason why that does not actually work is because, okay, look at what how much money was made by Top Gun Maverick at the same point in time. Look at how well that movie did. Sound of Freedom is doing very, very well. It's not doing... Top Gun Maverick levels well. It's it's just not there. So, again, I think that's a bit of a misnomer. But Sound of Freedom is still doing exceptionally well. as a great per theater ratio. It's having great holds. And that's why it's going to get to $100 million by the end of the week, before the week's even over, most likely. And when it opens internationally, who knows what happens? Because we all know this film is going through a lot of crap. We know there's probably going to be some countries that do not allow this film to actually get a release. But what we have in front of us right now are two films. One doing exceptionally well, especially compared to its budget, especially compared to what Angel Studios actually is going to be making back on this movie, which is an insane return on investment. You spent $5 million and you're at $90 million at the domestic box office. And you're going to see a huge portion of those receipts. That, that's massive profits right there. Disney wishes it had this movie right now. With, with Disney's massive hundreds of millions of dollar losses and things like The Little Mermaid and things like uh, Dial of Destiny, etc. They wish they had something like Sound of Freedom where it was a guaranteed $100 million profited movie. And that's just where it is right now. I mean, we're looking at that happening in the next week. Who knows where the end result ends up going? Could we see 150 million domestic? Could we see upwards of 200 million domestic? Who knows? Um, but it's doing incredibly well. So again, Dead Reckoning Part 1 is doing fine. It's doing exactly what a Mission Impossible film tends to do. There are no signs or indicators at this point that the film is a failure. The only argument one could make is that, well, it costs roughly $300 million, even if it does get to that $900 million mark, which seems, again, based off of the the historical data, seems like a likely end result. Then, you know, at that point, it's barely breaking even. But this is something that Valiant Renegade mentioned in our discussion last night and again check out the video on ww pro but he made a very interesting point in that all the mission possible films have had very 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 successful post theatrical numbers what does that mean it means that paramount as a company is when it puts it on paramount plus not going to do that right away for one it's going to take a long time it's going to be a very long time before it actually gets put onto paramount plus 
Also, remember that that means that there's going to be deals for distribution rights in certain in other markets. Basically, Paramount Plus is how Valiant Renegade worded it. I think it's a very good argument. Paramount Plus is where? North America. Disney Plus, where is it? International, right? So when Disney releases a movie on Disney Plus, they are giving themselves a movie for free. They're not making money off of that. Paramount Plus, when it puts its movie onto Paramount Plus, it's giving its movie to free to itself, but that's only going to affect the American domestic audience. It doesn't have Paramount Plus in Japan, in Australia, or in any other country. What does that mean? It means that it's going to be able to sell the rights to the movie for the international screening. So even if the film does only end up getting to $900 million, really the movie only needs to get right at that break-even point, it's going to be fine financially because it's going to be able to make its money back post-theatrical. That's not even including Blu-ray sales. That's not even including 4K sales. But the fact that it's going to get money coming directly from selling the, the streaming rights to other companies at those international markets automatically means that it's going to be able to make whatever money is left over that it needs to make back, back. And again, once the movie actually finishes its run, we'll call Balls and Strikes. We will absolutely call it as, as we see it. We will absolutely say, hey, this movie theatrically was a $50 million loss. It was a $20 million gain. Whatever the end up, you know, whatever the end result ends up being. But there is going to be more to the story because there are those alternate revenue streams that are going to be directly tied to the movie itself. But anyway, we'll go ahead then and jump back into the chat to see what y'all have to say about the things that we are discussing right now. And again, thank you all very much for being here. Uh, I thought I saw Sensei Mike in here. I hadn't seen that name in a long time. What's up, Sensei Mike? Bow to your Sensei. Bow to your Sensei. What's up, dude? I feel like it's been a long, long time. But welcome back. Glad to have you here. All right, let us see. Where did we left off? General Winkster says, oh, that's cool. But that's right, Odin. I have been your wife the whole time. Bum, 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 bum. Kimberly G, Tenet was better upon my second viewing. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I tell this story all the time. I heard all of the rumors of, of how, not the rumors, it was a fact, of how the sound design and mixing was terrible for Tenet and that you couldn't understand the, the vast majority of the movie. So when I went to go see it, I went in hyper-focused. And when you have ADHD, you actually have that capacity. You don't have full control over it, but you can have those moments of hyper-focus. So I was able to do that for seeing the movie. I was able to understand 95% of it. And, uh, and I, I enjoyed it for that reason because I thought the story was very interesting. I, I loved how the world worked and the world was built. It was, again, very, very compelling. And, but at the same time, I also was like, if anyone hates this movie because they don't understand it, I completely agree. I think that is objectively a problem for the film that it's sound mixing and sound design are so poor that the vast majority of the audience can't actually understand what's going on. <laughs> so, I mean, um, I, I definitely agree with that. But yeah, I, I did like Tenet. Let's see. Harvick says, without openly saying spoilers, do you think that considering all of the Lord of the Rings par uh, parallels in Mission Impossible 7, the bridge scene parallels the bridge of uh, Casa Doom, a certain character could return? Personally, I don't. Personally, I don't think that, that that's what's going to happen because, again, just because a movie happens to mirror other movies does not guarantee or mean, for one, that they're actually actively doing that or two, that they're following in the same pathway. Because, let's just be fair, when it comes to storytelling, there are tropes, right? There are certain stories, there are certain types of stories, types of storytelling 
where you'll see it shared between many, many different movies. And so, again, I, I personally don't think that that's going to happen. And I think it would actually be a terrible narrative choice. I think that the choice they made in Mission Impossible on the bridge was, again, I'm not going to say it was the right choice, but I think that it was a a good choice in the fact that I think it served the story. It didn't feel like it was a waste. It did not feel like it was um, unwarranted for what the story was telling us at that point. I think they had already raised the stakes to being at that level. Um, and so I think that for them to take it back would be a mistake story-wise. And, uh, and again, just because a film happens to mirror other films does not mean that it one is or that two, it's, it's going to follow in a similar footstep. Let's see, General Wingster says, I didn't realize that Mission Impossible 7 had such a long runtime, so I thought I had enough time. That was incorrect. Yeah, you always have to account for also that extra 20 minutes of trailers. Um, that always, to me, throws off a lot of uh, the movie going and a lot of the planning, to, trying to plan to do multiple screenings. Laura's like, yes, chart time. We all love charts here at OMB Reviews. We love the charts. We love all the charts. Let's see. Uh, Steven, I say, do you really believe that these actors need a second job just to make a living? Um, if they are the regular everyday actors, yes, I know that as a fact. Because if you are a if you are a working actor, and the vast majority of people in Hollywood are working actors, you are working paycheck to paycheck, and the only way for you to guarantee anything, whether it be healthcare or rent, is you got to have more than one job. So yeah. Um, now, if you're the big Hollywood stars, no. But the regular everyday actor, yes, absolutely. I, I, I know that to be true, factually. Um, let's uh, see here. Over on Rumble, Golden Rage. What's going on? Over on Rumble, appreciate you being here. King Kane Rumsky also tagged to say, I think Mission Impossible 7 got better, Mission Impossible got better after Paula Wagner. Agree? Thoughts? Well, she was still involved, I feel, wasn't she, was she still a producer on three? I don't remember. Three was a turnaround again. Cause the honestly mission impossible only ever had one bad movie. That was mission Impossible two. That was a terrible movie. The first film is solid. The first film still holds up. Okay. I've, I've just rewatched these movies recently. And that film to me, just, it was actually even better than I remembered it. That train scene in my head, I had thought I had remembered seeing really bad visual effects and really cheesy uh, green screen. But then going back to it, I'm like, no, this was actually really well done for the 90s especially. Like, I was like, this is actually pretty cool. Um, whereas Mission Impossible 2, that film doesn't hold up. And it never held up, right? It was never good in the first place. Mission Impossible 3, even though I think that some people have hangups about it because of J.J. Abrams' involvement, I think that if you actually look at it, step back for a second, look at it objectively, it is significantly better than 2, and I honestly think Philip Seymour Hoffman is one of the best villains in the entire Mission Impossible uh, franchise. Uh, he was such a good, evil villain. He's exactly the kind of villain that you want, where he's just evil, and his his logic and his reasoning is something where you're like, oh my goodness, I could totally see someone having this, this way of thinking in the world, and it's scary to see, right? It's scary to see that. Um, but, uh, and then I think... Four, to me, is is one of the better ones, though, because that's what, in my opinion, and now having rewatched it, I can say, yeah, it's re really got the jumpstart of this like new era of Mission Impossible, right? You had the first film, 
which was great. They tried to keep it going, tried to franchise it with two, and it just sucked. They had a rebirth with three, and then four is when I felt like they got their groove. And then that continued on into five, and then continues on into six, and it continues on now, and then we're going to get the end with with eight, right? So that that's where I uh, that's where I stand at this point in time. Uh, let us see. Abomination, what's going on? Thank you very much for hanging out over on Odyssey. And again, if you have a comment or question, no matter what platform you're on, if you have a comment or question, please put at Odin at the very beginning of your comment to let me know you're trying to get my attention. Let's see. Hardwick says, it was neat to see Haley Atwell and Shea Wingham together in Dead Reckoning. He played her boss, Chief Dooley, in season one of Agent Carter. Dan Blackroy does say, you going to mention that budget difference between Dead Reckoning and Fallout? Um, not explicitly, because again, I, I, I pretty much did say that the movie does need to make quite a bit of money to break even, right? And that's been the case for the vast majority of the Fallout franchise, or rather the Mission Impossible franchises, because especially since they took off, they've been you know spending quite a bit. Um, but again, $85 million difference in budget, that's a big one for sure. But that's also why the fact that it's trending higher than Fallout means that the chances of it making that back up is more likely. And again, I also mentioned that even if it doesn't, even if it ends up being a box office flop, specifically at the box office, again, it's too early to tell that at this point in time. As as we all know, Ted, you know, I was gonna say Ted Cruz, Tom Cruise is very much a proponent, and we know that this is gonna be the case with this movie. It's gonna be in theaters for a very, very long time. And it's gonna have this exclusive theatrical uh, window for a very long time. And if the international continues to be as strong as it is. So again, if we see a massive drop-off domestically, internationally, the whole game changes, right? The whole game changes at that point. At this point, though, all the data that we're seeing right now, there's nothing really showing or saying that, other than people pointing out it did not live up to the projections of the so-called experts. That's really the only thing that people have to go off of. And also, again, people bringing up the budget, which again, it's true. It needs to make a lot of money. There's no doubt about that. But whereas... Something like Little Mermaid or as something like Dial of Destiny saw, saw a lot of money losses. And let's actually use Little Mermaid. Little Mermaid did much better than Dial of Destiny did and cost a lot less than Dial of Destiny. We don't know the exact budget, but let's assume that it was around 50 to $100 million of financial losses for Disney. They're not going to really make that back up because when they put it on Disney+, Plus, guess what? They don't get money back on that. But let's say Mission Impossible. Let's say it ends at $800 million. Let's say it, it, it ends at $850 million. According to my metrics, again, I use a 2.5 times multiplier. That would mean it would have broken even and made profit. Now, if you use a 3 times multiplier, well, then that puts its break even closer to $900 million. But Let's say, for the sake of argument, it makes $800, $850 million. I think that, again, that seems likely based on the numbers that we have right now. Okay, you're talking there about what? Same range, $50 to $100 million in financial losses. Okay, individual film? It's going to be an individual flop for that movie. But Paramount has something that Disney does not. And that is the ability to market out its movie, to sell the rights to the streaming rights to that movie at the international marketplace. You can get quite a bit of money for that. As again, it is a hot property. And also to those Blu-ray and physical media sales. And we know that the Mission Impossible films sell very, very well post-theatrical. That's been the nature of the beast. And guess what? People who have seen this almost universally, are coming out of this loving the movie, thinking it's great, thinking that it's well worth seeing in theaters. So that same type of enthusiasm we see about most of these movies is there. So again, that's the reason why I look at all the data that's in front of us right now, 
And one, there doesn't seem to be a lot of indication that it's not going to get their box office exclusively. But even if it does barely miss out on it, it does have something that Disney does not, which is the capacity to continue to make money after the fact. So hopefully that makes more sense. Let us see. Nick Braun, what's up? Tad to say, what are your predictions for the success of the Barbie movie now that some people are saying it has a strong gender feminist message? The, the movie actually has to come out. The movie has to come out. And because the marketing has not been really pushing that, what again, what Greta Gerwig has been saying about her movie, and because most people probably aren't going to be listening to what Greta Gerwig has to say, then you have to look at that and say, okay, opening weekend, Right now, the projections are, I think, somewhere between domestic. Domestically, I think the projections are 90 to 125 million is what they think the range could be for its domestic opening. We'll talk about that in conjunction with Oppenheimer, though, in a little bit when we move on to the next thing. Because uh, there is an article. Uh, Deadline does have an article out now with those projections. Let's just say it's going to be probably one of the best. Uh, it's probably going to be one of the best box office weekends that we've seen in quite a long time. Uh, at the theater, because of again, think about all of the different groups. Because let's be frank, these are not the same audiences for these three movies. That's that the biggest again, actually four movies. Let's go ahead and put Sound of Freedom into this because it is definitely up there now, right? You have this audience going out to see Sound of Freedom, all right. So you're probably going to see what another 15, 20 million dollars domestic for that. You then have the second weekend for Mission Impossible, probably 30 million dollars or more in second weekend. We have to wait and see what those numbers are going to look like. Oppenheimer is, I think, expected to get around $50 million domestic. Barbie, around $100 million domestic. So overall, it's going to be a pretty big weekend at the box office, especially in the domestic market. Probably one of the biggest in a while. Um, the interesting thing, and what will be interesting to look at, is going to see where do these movies fall. Uh, because again, really, there's not a lot of cross-pollination between those audiences. There's some, for sure. But a, a predom- likely will be a predominantly female audience for Barbie, predominantly older male for Oppenheimer. But remember, Oppenheimer is a three-hour talking movie. So yes, Nolan has a huge fan base. And the movie looks great. But also, it's not an action movie, as in the case with Mission Impossible. So again, there's different audiences there. And and so again, I think that that's what's going to make it interesting, is that pretty much any audience, any like microcosm or any... If you were to break down the audience, uh, the general movie-going populace, there's pretty much something for everybody this weekend, which is a very rare feat in today's modern box office, I would say. Let's see. Uh, Laura says, The Bear sounds like a Hallmark movie, actually. Handsome, world-renowned chef must return home to save his family's dinner. Chaos ensues. Interesting. Kayan Rumsky over on Rumble says, The train scene reminds me. Was Ethan Hunt a fugitive for the seventh time in a row in Mission Impossible 7? <laughs> oh, nice. Let's see. Dan Blackroy's member says, WWE Pro and Valiant Renegade making up numbers to fit a narrative they want to tell. Uh, again, w- Dan, Dan Blackroy, please, <laughs> yeah, please, please don't go after them like that. I, I just, again... I am going to go ahead and say that, especially in the case with with Valiant, the points that I just brought up that he made, they are completely sound. Because it is something that even I didn't even think about. That Paramount does not have its streaming service in those international countries. 
you do make money when you sell streaming rights to your movie. Think about how much money was spent by the owners of TNT TBS to get the streaming rights to Star Wars, to the sequel trilogy. Those are very large deals. So that, that's not fake money. Now, if someone's going to try to add that after the fact to the box office take, if someone tried to do that, and guess what? Neither of them are doing that. Then you could say that's sus. But that's not at all what's happening here. But anyway. Let's see. Great Wuda. Titus say, quick question. MI7 had world premieres in Rome, Korea, Japan, and New York City. For starters, do those movie premieres uh, added to the production budgets? No. Um, again, the production budgets are estimates that we get. T- typically, they are right on the money. Not always. Disney, especially, we have found out more recently, has been very much undercutting and underselling their budgets. We've projected and thought that for a while, but now we actually have confirmation with the data that's come out of, for instance, uh, Doctor Strange 2. We found out from the tax, you know, the tax documents coming out of the UK that it ended up costing an extra $100 million to make that movie. But as far as what that is concerned, no, that, that would be more so a part of the marketing cost. So that's why you have the production budget is the actual making of the movie itself from start to finish. The marketing then takes over to try to sell the movie. And so marketing would also then include any of those premieres, any of those special events, things like that. That would all be from the, the marketing of the film. So, all right. Back into the chat. Let's see. Orange Eye Reviews. The member says, oh, I just reminded this Saturday I won't be able to mod. I will be at a class reunion. Well, hey, that's awesome. Harvey says, Christopher Quarry has hinted that he plans for more Mission Impossible movies after 8. I have a hunch he's setting up Grace to be the new lead for after Ethan. I think that he might be saying that. I think a lot of directors tend to say certain things to try to basically keep things interesting and keep people guessing. That very well could be the direction they decide to go in. I just think that that would ultimately be a poor choice. I think that she having her own story would be great. I don't think you should call it Mission Impossible anymore, to be perfectly frank. Um... But who knows? We'll have to wait and see. Fedigator, time to say, do you think the writer-actor strike continues for four to six months? If so, how do these studios theaters survive late 2024, 2025 with no movies to show? I think that the writer's strike will go on for a bit. And again, this is pure speculation. I just remember the last writer's strike went on for quite a while, and it impacted movies and shows, right? The destruction of Heroes, the show, a lot of that was because of the writer strike. Quantum of Solace, right? Daniel Craig's uh, second James Bond movie got negatively impacted because of the writer strike. So I think that because of that, you will likely see the writer strike extend on for a little bit. I don't know exactly how long. Whereas in the case with the actor strike, I think that one probably would last one to two months max would be my guess because let's be frank Hollywood is in a terrible position right now and the last thing they need is for their actors to be not making movies to be adding and accruing costs when they're already spending too much on these movies in the first place and also to not have them to be at the premieres to be there to sell their movies And so it's a good move on the actors and writers to an extent because, hey, it gives them a position of 
uh, of authority, right? It gives them a position of being able to lean into them, right? A position of strength, I should say. However, at the same time, when you already have such a fragile industry that's just starting to get back up and running post-COVID, it is also bad because now you're also throwing a wrench into the entire process. So, yeah. I think writer strike will go on much longer than the actor strike, if I had to guess. By how long, I'm not quite sure. Let's see. Abomination over on Odyssey said, but the real question is, can Directing Part 1 beat Barbie? Uh, no. He says, uh, he tied it and say, Mission Improbable. I will go on to say the first thing. No, I think Barbie is going to, no, Barbie is. Barbie's the new release. Barbie's the brand new release. And so Barbie is going to win the weekend. Um, I don't have a lot of doubts about that. The big question is going to be, what kind of drop-off does Mission Impossible see? And also, where does um, where does Oppenheimer fall into the mix? Because Oppenheimer is going to be taking over all of the premium screens, right? All of those premium format screens. It's going to have a three-week, I believe, three-week exclusive run in IMAX. So um, it's going to be able to get a lot of money from that. But remember, just because you are in higher-priced screens does not automatically mean that you're going to make a crap ton of money. And the reason why is because look at the fact that you have Barbie and Oppenheimer coming out the same weekend and Barbie is projected to make twice as much. In fact, let's go ahead because uh, with that, I think that we uh, have a good um, we have a good uh, leadway into the, the final story and then we'll end with just going through chats for the rest of the time. But we do have some early projections for Barbie and Oppenheimer. So this is coming from Tony and Nance, Tony and Nance over on Deadline. By the way, thank you all again for joining today. 83 people still watching over on YouTube. Smash that like button, please. And whatever platform you're watching on, smash it. But as you can see, Tony and Nance are saying right now, Barbie and Oppenheimer to rattle the globe with combined $260 million opening. So again, we have here an interesting, first off, the fact that they are seemingly embracing the Barbenheimer meme by combining their their totals together. And it also just seems like desperation for Tony and Nance to have something positive to talk about when it comes to box office. <laughs> like again, uh, they're always seeming to be coping. But as it says right here, at the time when the industry is suffering through historical strikes by the WGA and SAG, like they've never happened before, Tony, the motion picture industry is poised to see an enormous weekend at the box office. After the long-awaited Barbie and Nolan's World War II era three-hour adult drama of Oppenheimer. Now, here is the most important part of this, which is the actual breakdown. Barbie, which has pre-sales far exceeding Little Mermaid, not that that is too difficult, has a crazy range, crazy range of projections stateside. So domestically, Barbie is expected to make 90 to 125 million. Now, here's where it goes back to what was just being said about IMAX and why just because you're in premium screens does not mean that you're going to make more money. Barbie is not in any of, to my knowledge, any of the premium formatted screens, right? When it comes to IMAX, at the very least, we know Nolan has IMAX on lock for his movie for the next few weeks. So Barbie is expected to make 90 to $125 million domestically, all without premium screens. What does that mean? Guess what? It means movies can make money without premium format screens, and that it ultimately comes down to general interest in a film and also whether a film is any good or not. And that's what we will find out this weekend with Mission Impossible, right? Is, okay, where does this movie end up falling in this mix? 
But I think that there is an argument to be had that because Barbie and Oppenheimer are both coming out, this could potentially also be good news for, you know, some would think it would be bad news for a movie like Mission Impossible, but it actually could be good news because if you think about it, it means now all of his attention, social media attention, especially on Barbenheimer, there's a lot more attention on the box office, a lot more attention on the movie theaters themselves. And because of that, it, I think, is going to lead to a lot of people having their eyes on it, seeing what's out in theaters, and saying, okay, I don't really think I could do the three hours Oppenheimer, and I don't want to see Barbie, but hey, Mission Impossible looks pretty cool. Let me go see that instead. How much of that is going to impact it, I couldn't say, but it wouldn't surprise me if there's some of that like almost rubbing off, as it were, because of all the attention and because of all of the um, focus that's going to be on the box office this coming weekend. So 90 to 125 million is the domestic. Warner's is saying 75 million, so they're trying to, of course, be much more conservative. So that way, if it does overperform, they can then say it is overperforming, etc. Um, worldwide, it's eyeing around 165 million, which would be 60 to 65 million dollars from the offshore international markets. So that means a global opening for Barbie is projected to be around 165 million dollars, whereas for Oppenheimer is $100 million a global start. Now, that's a pretty strong start, though, when you have a three-hour movie with people talking. So, what this means is that it seems, based on the numbers, based on what we're being told right now, that Barbie will end up winning the weekend, domestically and internationally. Oppenheimer will probably be coming in a very strong second in both the domestic and international markets. And as I said, it would not surprise me to see Mission Impossible also be in the mix here, coming in with a strong third. Now, there are some saying, well, hey, we've seen a we've seen very strong performances coming out of Sound of Freedom. Could Sound of Freedom potentially come in that number three spot, beating out Mission Impossible? Is it possible? Sure. Is it likely? I would say no. And the reason why is because it's doing very well. No one's denying that. The Sound of Freedom is doing exceptionally well. But also, it is now going into its third weekend. It is a independent film. It has a lot of support around it, but I also think that it probably is starting to, and we'll find out very soon, it's probably starting to run out of people to see the movie that have not already seen it, that are actually interested in it. What I mean is that the unfortunate thing about the media is that they do have influence. They are able to convince people of false things. We know this to be true. And I think ultimately you look at how many people how many of these mainstream elitists have attacked and gone after a film like Sound of Freedom? And even though the movie has proven against all of the odds that it's able to perform well because of a huge word-of-mouth campaign for the movie, the question is, okay, well, how long is that going to last? Because this is a fact. It can't last forever. It, it can't last forever. It eventually is going to start to lose money from week to week to week and leave theaters. But it's going to probably take a while for that to happen because of the amount of support and love the movie is actually getting. So it's going to be interesting to see, but I would not be surprised if this is now the start of the decline, but I don't think it's going to be a rapid decline. I think that we saw a 35% increase, roughly, this past weekend for the movie. It wouldn't surprise me to see single digits, maybe even you know small, low, double digits drop from last weekend, having seen that increase from the week before. Whereas, again, looking at where that movie was, if it has that type of uh, that type of a decrease, 
that's where I think it would still leave that room for a film like Mission Impossible to still come in the number three spot. It's going to be fun to watch no matter what, right? No matter what the one, two, three, four ends up being, it's going to be a really good weekend for the box office. And that's great for theaters, right? You know, screw Hollywood, screw them. But you know what? When the theaters are winning and the audiences especially are winning, I think that's a good thing. But I, of course, will get back to y'all on whether Barbie is just complete nonsense or whether it is just the actors and director causing a bunch of, you know, chaos when it's not actually there in the first place. All right, over on Rumble, King and Rumsky tagged to say, do you think they replace Tom Cruise eventually for Ethan Hunt's character due to the age like they do in James Bond? I don't think they, uh, they do right off the bat. Could they do it down the line? Who knows? Paramount is still a studio that could make decisions like that. I think they would be dumb to do it, though. I think that they can look around and see, okay, we can't just keep this franchise going forever. And my hope is that Paramount would probably learn from from the mistakes that have been made by Disney and Warner Brothers in their massive box office flops that maybe they should take a break. If that's what they want to do, if they want to reboot it, or if they want to continue it with somebody else, they're going to have to let things settle for a little bit. Let things calm down for a little bit, right? Before actually going forward with it. Um, so anyway, that that's where I would be on that one. Let's see. Golden Rage on Rumble then says, Nick Diglio says the Barbie movie is a masterpiece. I think Diglio is overreacting. He tends to do that. He's a movie critic in Chicago. I mean, when a critic in general, especially a professional critic, is saying something to that degree, I immediately question it. I immediately question it. Especially when I know the caliber of quality or lack thereof coming from Greta Gerwig. Vomination over on Odyssey says... That Barbenheimer thing reminds me of when Doom Eternal and Animal Crossing came out. People were making so many memes pairing them together. Nice. Um, he then went also before that said, It sounds interesting. I wonder how much people watch their spending. Spending so much more for a three-hour movie might put more people off. Um, that very well could be true, too. But remember, it's also going to be available in regular screens. So it'll be interesting to watch for sure. Definitely will be interesting to watch. All right, back into the YouTube chat. Jonah Wingster says, actors are waiters. Many of them are, but not all. Cultural breakdown, what's going on? Uh, and I would disagree. No, Mission Impossible 2 was bad. It, it was bad. And it's not, again, it, it unfortunately, it is still a Mission Impossible movie because it has the title for it. I know what you mean by that. Um, but no, it's, it's just a bad movie. Rob D says, what is it that makes Mission Impossible 2? Plot, too far-fetched stunts, bad CGI. Um, really, really bad camera work. Um, the editing and the pacing. And really just the entire vision of the director. He films it in such a way where it becomes, it, it becomes almost a parody of itself. And that, I think, is the biggest problem of all with it is that it's not a film that can really honestly be taken seriously. Because of how it is filmed. Zion Waters says, Mission Impossible 3 is the only one I've liked. I liked Ethan's wife and was disappointed they got rid of her. Um, yeah. And again, I think that 3 has a lot going for it. But nah, man. 4 is is so much better. Again, I like them both. But 4 is so much better. And I disagree. I think I think that all of the ones since then have been fantastic. Let's see. Forever Sci-Fi, who is a member, says, I wonder how long a movie... 
you could put together if you just took all the crew's running scenes and put them together. It would make a great gym motivation video. That'd be interesting. Harwick says, I li- I think that Philip Seymour Hoffman is still the best villain of the movies. I agree with Zine Waters that I wish they didn't have to split up Ethan and Julia. Yeah, I'm honestly, but to be fair, I am also kind of happy they did because I don't know if I would have wanted a movie franchise where she's just around. She's just in the background uh, constantly. I-, I just don't think it would have worked out. Whereas with the other women that they brought into Ethan's life, you have a former MI6 agent. You have a, a lifelong thief, professional thief pickpocket um, in the new character that, that has been established, the new character of Grace in Mission Possible 7. Those make sense. Whereas with uh, with his wife, she's, she's a nurse, right? She doesn't really have any experience in any way. Um, and so I, again, I'm, I think I'm kind of happy that they, they end up making that decision because it also creates a bit of drama too in the storytelling of how he's doing certain things to try to protect his wife. And it's logical because of the job he has, the occupational hazards that he brings along with it. Bruce trying to say, yep, I can't wait to get the Blu-ray of mission impossible. Same here. I've already pre-ordered my, uh, my, uh, 4k steel books. Luckily, a lot of these steel books now are no longer exclusive to best buy. So you can pre-order them pretty easily. Dan Blackroyd, whose member says, Mystery numbers will save Mission Impossible until they can tell me the estimated figure. It's just made-up numbers for streaming. Interesting to hear what the experts say about the marketing spend. Again, Dan Blackroyd, calm down, dude. It's not made-up numbers. Go ahead and look up for yourself what a studio gets. Look up any studio, any movie from Paramount. Let's go ahead and look up Top Gun Maverick. See if you can find, give you a little bit of homework, Dan Blackroy. Look up and see how much Paramount got for the streaming rights for Top Gun Maverick in the international markets. I think that should hopefully give you some perspective on why it has an impact. And they're not made up. (laughs) Anyway. Uh, let's see. B-Rad says, I found Grace constantly turning on the team to be tiresome, but it also is completely sensible to her character. Like, I actually am happy they did that because in most movies, especially in today's modern Hollywood, she would have uh, become amazing in no time flat. This actually shows that she has to actually, one, she actually has to earn the trust, or they have to earn her trust, I should say. That's very rare. Most of the time, they kind of skip over that part. They just go for it. They just let everybody, you know, get along very, very quickly. I like the fact that even when it's clear that she works very well, she has great chemistry with Tom Cruise's character, that she still is not fully on board, that she is still thinking about herself, and that it takes a major event before she finally is able to trust so it's actually, I think, good writing for them to do that. Hardwick. Tag to say, to add clarification to my previous comment, I don't mind Julia being temporarily in hiding like it goes protocol. I just wish they had kept the temporary until Ethan retired. Dan Blackroy, it's gone from Tom Cruise is saving the Hollywood box office to now his movie might achieve profit via streaming. I don't call these people experts who predicted that. Well, I always, again, you know me, Dan Blackroyd, that 
I think anyone saying Tom Cruise is specifically the reason why anything is making money, I think that's a foolish statement. I've been very clear about that. And the best example of that, and I've mentioned this before, is The Mummy. Live action, the attempt to make the dark universe, that was a Tom Cruise movie. And guess what? That movie flopped. And that movie single-handedly destroyed any potential for the dark universe. So Tom Cruise himself is not automatically a box office draw. That is a fact. We, we have movies to point to. That being said, Tom Cruise in a good movie with good marketing, that has proven itself to be quite effective. Top Gun Maverick is just one of those examples. But the other Mission Impossible films, guess what? The last several, going back to 2000s, late 2000s, Right Once they pick things back up with Mission Impossible 3 going on, those have been successful movies. The last couple especially, you're looking at $850 million and $900 million respectfully for Rogue Nation and Fallout. Those were successful movies. Those were massive hits. Future is still uncertain for this movie. But right now, there's no data to suggest that it won't have a similar end as those movies as far as profitability are concerned. But... I think to say Tom Cruise saved the box office is more so a saying in that, okay, well, what was the biggest box office movie of last year? It was Top Gun Maverick. What is likely still going to be one of the biggest movies of this year, Mission Impossible 7, is still going to be one of the biggest movies of this year. Even if it doesn't get as high as what some had thought. And again, I said, I think a billion dollars is possible. I don't think it's guaranteed. And I definitely don't think it has any chance, and this is even going before the movie came out, I did not think it had any chance to get close to what Top Gun Maverick made. Um, but it is still a good movie that's getting very high praise, that is getting great word of mouth, and we have seen that that consistently has been a great formula, especially when you have Tom Cruise in a leading role, pushing for his movie, advocating for his movie, and that has been a pretty good um, combination of things. So, again, we'll still have to wait and see what the actual numbers are for this movie by the end of it, but... I, I still think it's going to do well and think it's doing fine. Uh, Bruce says, yeah, for me, Oppenheimer is just going to be a Blu-ray buy, no theater visit. Man, Bruce. But even, <laughs> and I can understand the hesitancy there, but I just feel like it is a movie that seems to be made, <laughs> that seems to be made for, for IMAX, that seems to be made for the big screen. Uh, let's see, Rob D., uh, has there been any word that Mission Impossible 7's $290 million budget is shared with part two? Rob D, this has been asked so many times, so I'm just going to stop there. So again, a production budget is a production budget, right? So for instance, you mentioned uh, you know Deathly Hollows part one and two there at the end. But remember, no, the money they spent on part one is the money they spent on part one. Now, if they built a set or if they did, again, build something that's a creative piece that clearly they're not just going to tear down between movies, right? They're filming at the, around the same time. Okay, well, then you could see some some cost-saving measures there, right? But ultimately, it's going to be... So any money that's going to be shared, quote-unquote shared, between part one and part two of Dead Reckoning is going to be from sets built, things like that. Because they're going to have to, again, when they, when they are breaking down the overall cost, they're going to have specifically allocate the money there. And also, Dan Blackroyd... Again, I know I know you're really passionate about this subject, man, but you mentioned in your most recent comment in the live chat, small correction, I believe Avatar was the biggest movie. I said of the summer. Top Gun, Maver Top Gun Maverick was the biggest summer 
was the biggest movie of the summer. If I did not say that, then I apologize. But again, I don't stand corrected because it was the biggest movie of the summer. Avatar did not come out until later in the year. It was the biggest movie of the year, but not of the summer. Okay? But you need to chill out, bro. Matt R. Hail! So glad to be here. Glad to have you, man. Glad to have you here. It's getting old, Dan. It's really getting old now. They had the perfect placement in Renner, but they ignored him from the last movies. Now with his health, it would be up in the air, but they had it and they wasted it. I would disagree. I don't think Renner would have been a perfect replacement. I think he was a perfect part of the team, but he was not a perfect replacement. Greatest example as to why that's the case? Remember how they tried to make Jeremy Renner the new Jason Bourne? He's not really a leading man. So, again, he does great in the role that he had, but no, disagree completely. He would not have been a good replacement at all. All right, let's see. Forever Sci-Fi, who's a member, says, Between the coof and these strikes, you're going to see the final break of people going to the theaters. You might. You very well might. I think that is absolutely a possibility. Great Wuda. Transformers Revenge of the Fallen was also affected by the writer's strike, too. I don't really even count Transformers movies because those movies would have sucked even without it. <laughs> like, you know, like, at least if you go back to the James Bond movie, right? The first movie, Casino Royale, was fantastic. You go back to the Transformers movies, none of them have been any, any good. Let's see. Uh, Bianca Zombie over on Rumble. What's going on? King and Rumsky then tagged to say, in Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 2, do you think we get cool returns of older characters like Jeremy Renner, Anthony Hopkins, Emilio Estevez, etc.? Um, well, one of those is impossible. You do remember what happened to Emilio Estevez's character, right, King and Rumsky? <laughs> Even I had forgotten what happened before I rewatched the movie. Um, but yeah, so that that that's an impossibility for Emilio Estevez's character. <laughs> Unless they're going to bring back Ghost, and I don't think they're going to have Force Ghost uh, in the movie. <laughs> Wrong franchise. Wrong franchise. Uh, but could you see some of the others? You, you might. You might. I think if he survives, we don't know what's going to happen, right? But if Ethan Hunt survives in part two, I think the perfect ending would be some type of going off into the sunset with his wife. He's retiring, and he's he's with his wife. If they go that direction. If they don't go that direction, if maybe he dies in part two, then at that point, having a final shot of his wife at his grave or something, I think that would be a really you know powerful way to end it, too. Is that what they're going to do? I don't know. But, yeah, that would be, that would be uh, my guess, is that if anything, they're going to bring, they are going to bring the character of his wife back, if I had to guess. Abomination over on Odyssey says, would be funny if people go to see Oppenheimer just to watch the bomb go off on IMAX and turns out to be mid because they're so used to the Hollywood spectacle explosion extravaganza in movies. Yeah, it could be. Based on what I read about how they actually made the whole bomb effect, though, I don't think that's going to be a problem. And if anyone can make a bomb look fantastic, it's Nolan. Abomination, a force ghost is impossible. So impossible, it just might work in a Mission Impossible movie. <laughs> it's abomination. Uh, I love you, dude. Uh, your average nerd, hail chat. What's going on? Welcome, welcome, welcome. All right, let's see. It's 8.02 in the chat. It's 8.22 in real life. I'm about 20 minutes behind. I will do the very best that I can to get to everybody's comments. Though I might have to start skipping some who have had a, had a lot of comments so far. 
trying to keep things fair. Let's see, Hardwick says, did you know that the Mission Impossible theme is made up of two long notes and two short? Nope. Again, I... <laughs> that, that stuff doesn't really interest me that much. Uh, great, I'm going to see Mission Impossible 7 ne again next week. Nice, dude. Definitely think it's worth it. Definitely think it's worth it for sure. Yarish says, this headline screamed that the establishment really want Sound of Freedom and Mission Impossible 7 to go away. Definitely seems that way. Yarish Prejudur, this says Mission Impossible 7 was really a lot of fun. Now I need to go back and see 3 to 6. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've gone back to the first one and have been watching through, and it's been great. It's been really great to, to, to watch them again. J.S. Pena says, ahoy, ahoy. Uh, Hardwick says, palm clandem teeth. Uh, Clementif wanted Tom Cruise to kick her in the stomach for real in the alley fight scene, but he refused. She was awesome, too. I mean, she was great in the film. She was fantastic. And I honestly, when I was doing even my review, when I was mentioning her name, I had no idea who she was. It wasn't until I was watching, I think it was Az's review, where I, I finally realized, oh, this is the same actress that plays Mantis. <laughs> I was like, wait, I didn't even see that. Um because of just, again, how different the characters' looks are. But, yeah, Palm Clementif was was awesome. She was so so kick-ass in that movie, uh, in, in Mission Impossible. So, it was a really awesome scene, too. It was a very well-choreographed fight scene. J.S. Pena, tried to say, I saw what happened on Friday Night Tights. Either God actually does exist, or you did, didn't did set up the shelf right. Um, or, both things, can, or two things can be true. Uh, one, God does absolutely exist, regardless of the shelf. And two, the shelf was well constructed. It just is not made to be filled with Blu-rays off the wall. <laughs> Zine Waters says, considering Mission Possible was never about Ethan Hunt, who wasn't even in the original TV show, they could easily reboot it with new characters. They could. I don't want them to. I think it would be a mistake for them to do that. And I think that because of the strikes, they might actually have time to think about these decisions. Whether they do or not is anyone's guess, but one can hope. Jazz Pena. Also, I pity the fools who thought Barbie was going to be good. Yeah. I didn't have high hopes for it in the beginning, especially once I found out that Greta Gerwig was attached to it, but... Oh, well. Miss Minnesota Hockey fan, how about a hockey player? I am hoping to see either Mission Possible 7 or Found of Freedom in theaters, I think I will wait for Oppenheimer because of the long runtime. I would suggest both Mission Impossible and Sound of Freedom. I think that both of them are great theatrical watches. Um, out of all of them, though, I haven't seen Oppenheimer, so I can't say for sure. But there are certain movies that are made for the big screen. And there are others that are made to be seen in either a home environment or theatrical. Sound of Freedom, as good as it is, it's not a movie you have to see in theaters. Mission Impossible 7, it's a good movie. It's going to be great no matter where you watch it, but it's going to be a lot more impactful in a movie theater. And I suspect Oppenheimer will be the same. Uh, Patron Nerd says, Mission Impossible 2 was boring. Yeah, it was just also not good. Dan Blackwood says, If they fool the villain using a face mask, it's a Mission Impossible movie. Two counts. I do appreciate when you watch the old uh, the film from the beginning, how originally the masks are not nearly as elaborate as they are now, but also it's great because once they establish how it works in their universe, it is fun to see how not only they work with the mask, but then also how others do it too. Let's see. Victor Fontaine, what's going on, brother? Harvard had to say, as bad as Mission Impossible 2 is, it has one of my favorite moments from the franchise, Ethan Hunt getting shot in the head only to be another guy. Oh, it, that is a great moment. The acting of the villain is not 
<laughs> That's another problem. Someone was asking what the problems were. One of the other problems is that a lot of the acting in Mission Impossible 2 is not good. The the villain, for sure, is one of those examples. Goodness gracious, it's cringe. Um, <laughs> no, you know what the best part of Mission Impossible 2 is? Anytime you hear the Limp Biscuit theme. Period. The Morak. Did I say Philip Seymour Hoffman was such a talented actor with tremendous range? He was hilarious in Twister. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic role. Losers go that way. Michael A., any reason why Cruz and McQuarrie are inconsistent when it comes to shooting with IMAX? Fallout had IMAX scenes, but Dead Reckoning did not. I'm pretty sure Dead Reckoning... I think they filmed some of it in IMAX. Um, right now, honestly, I'm more intrigued by the, the drama going on behind the scenes with Nolan getting the IMAX exclusive. And apparently... I forgot what video I was watching, but it went into how apparently... Um, it was either the last Mission Impossible or it was this one or the lead up to this one where basically IMAX like screwed over uh, Mission Impossible in some way. I forgot what it was, but uh, Zion Waters says, I thought Mission Impossible 5 was okay, but Alec Baldwin's acting was so bad. I honestly thought he was a bad guy pretending to be good, you know, acting so the audience knows he's bad. I mean, Alec Baldwin. Yeah, <laughs> he's Alec Baldwin in the movie. Yeah, not 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 a good not a good performance. That's definitely a, a low point for that movie. Ryan Liu, trying to say, how much do you think Barbie will make in the final worldwide? Hard to say at this point in time, but if it's going to open up to, if it actually does hit this $160 million opening, um, again, if it has an average run, so again, could it fall off a cliff? Maybe. That's the case with any movie, right? But at $160 million, using the metrics that I've... Again, a lot of films tend to make about a third of their box office. Again, if it's an average performing movie in the first week global opening. So that would mean it could potentially get upwards of $480 million worldwide. And if the budget really is only $100 million, that would be good. Let's see. Greta Zenner, what's going on, Greta? Welcome back. Glad to have you back in the chat. Uh, Dan Blackroy, the numbers would have been very high for Maverick because it was a successful movie. I'm questioning if Mission Impossible 7 gets near the same amount without the box office behind it. Again, at this point, I don't even know what the context is. Ryan Liu, do you think Jeremy Renner will come back in the next movie? Uh, based on the health, I again, I don't know how much of it was filmed before his accident, um, but it's a possibility, but I I don't know. Hamilton Burger, I'm not an expert. I just play one on the TV news. I already corrected the correction there. Uh, great Buddha, I'm not watching Oppenheimer either. I think it looks great. I'm excited for it. I love Cabbage, ew, over on Rumble. Uh, let's see. It says, John Woo did Mission Impossible 2 like a Hong Kong action movie. It didn't translate well. No. No, it did not. <laughs> KK and, uh, Rumsky, in response to God existing, could your shelving have fallen because he wants you to bring back the lighting for the Saints days? <laughs> well, again, I have nothing against that because I actually was my favorite things about my old office. Unfortunately, with the way that my office is painted, those light, the lighting th choices just don't actually work. Like, for instance, today, it's supposed to be bright white anyway. Um, but, Yeah. Uh, Kimberly G, Oppenheimer looks so good. Don't know if I'll get back to the theater so soon, though. Yeah, again, it's it's definitely it's something that one has to consider quite a bit. Definitely has to be something that one considers quite a bit. 
Uh, Greta, time to say, my friend and I are trying to coordinate a double feature with Oppenheimer and Barbie because we're crazy. No, you're just embracing the meme, Greta. Oh, man, Greta is going to fulfill the Barbenheimer. She's going to go full Barbenheimer on that one. Uh, all right, we are at time, so I'm going to try to get through these comments as quickly as possible. And again, if I do skip your comment, it might be because there's been a lot from you. Uh, average nerd, I want to see Oppenheimer, but the runtime looks daunting. But think about some of the greatest films of all time. Gone with the Wind? Look at that runtime. I'm not saying that Oppenheimer is at the same level. I'm just saying just because a movie is long does not automatically mean X. Uh, Hammond and Berger, of course, they could have Ghost, Mission Impossible, even a whole protocol. <laughs> Ryan Lewis, Tom Cruise really making Mission Impossible till he's 80. I, I doubt it. Based on everything that has been indicated about this movie, uh, 8 should be the end, at least for his character. Okay, I'm skipping some comments again because I'm out of time. Ryan Lee, are you watching Oppenheimer and IMAX? I wish I don't have one near me. Uh, The nearest one is in Nashville, and that's like two hours away. So what I've decided, Ryan, that's actually a good question. Um, I decided that I was going to, this probably be the last question, actually. I apologize if I was not able to get to yours. But um, if Oppenheimer is good, I suspect that it will be, but you never know. If it is good, then I will try to plan out during these last days of summer that I have, uh, I might try to plan out driving to Nashville to see the IMAX 70 millimeter uh, version because you all know I I love that stuff. Um, I'm a big uh, fan of these projects. I remember when Hateful Eight came out, um, one of my theaters was lucky enough to get the 35 millimeter print that... Tarantino was was you know having sent around the nation. Um, there was like this traveling uh, projector basically that you could get in your theater, and it was able to play the 35 millimeter. And I just remember watching Hateful Eight, and it was just awesome. It was so cool to see. So I would love to see the 70 millimeter uh, IMAX. The unfortunate thing is that it is so it's about a two hour drive for me. So it's doable, but it's complicated, especially when. Uh, you know, baby Thor has to get to school, get back from school, and that's four hours of total driving and a three-hour movie. So it's like a seven-hour frame that I have to plan out exactly right. So the movie basically has to be fantastic and has to be one of the best things I've ever seen that it drives me to actually want to go see it in that kind of a theater. But anyway, that's going to be it for me tonight, everybody. I just want to say thank you again for... Uh, for, for watching tonight. This was a lot of fun, great discussion. Hopefully you've learned a little bit about why, again, right now the box office for Mission Impossible is not really as bad as people are are saying that it is. Just there's no data at this point to suggest that that's actually happening. Uh, Sign of Freedom is doing exponentially better than anything else that has come out more recently. And also we did go into some of the data, uh, early data about Barbie and Oppenheimer and how this coming weekend is likely going to be the biggest box office weekend that we've had in quite a long time. That's going to be a wrap for me, everybody, because I do got to go. We've got family friends over, and tonight is their last night, so I want to be able to spend a little bit of time uh, with them. Not sure what they're doing, and I think that we're going to try to also get the wall painted and whatever last-minute things that we need to do. Um, and uh, hopefully by the next stream, we are able to have at least the shelf back, whether this movie is or Blu-rays on it, will depend on whether I have the time and the patience to actually get my movies in the order that they need to be in <laughs> by that time. But with all that being said, you guys are awesome. Huge shout out to the mods. Again, shout out to 
uh, Orange Chat reviews, and also to Laura, the Mod Major General. Uh, Orange Chat, my king mod. Seriously, you're awesome, dude. Thank you so very much for, for picking this up and for just running with it, uh, as you always do. And uh, for everyone watching on YouTube, Odyssey, Rumble. If you're watching on Kick, I, I apologize. I just had a lot of stuff going on tonight to be able to have that chat up too. But if you're watching on Kick, thank you. Appreciate that. You guys are all amazing and beautiful people. Hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. And as always, God bless.